Am I on? Good. Well, allow me again to pray as we get started, so let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we come to you tonight with grateful hearts, uh, because in you we have redemption through your blood, the forgiveness of sins. What that means is you have taken our, our past, um, our sinful past, and the broken pieces of our life, and you have paid the price of your own life so that we could have a different future than we deserve, and so that the pieces of our past could um, be something that brings joy and delight to you, to us, to those who know us, and allows us to be a part of your great purpose in this world and beyond. And you did this because, well, you, you lavished all of your grace on us according to your riches. You didn't just give us a minimum amount of grace, but you, you just poured it out on us. And you did this with all wisdom and understanding. You knew exactly our predicament long before we did. You understand exactly what we need. So again, we come to you tonight and ask that even though we don't see you, that you would loom large in our hearts and our minds, that you would be the one to speak to us. We ask that you would take the words of Scripture that you, Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to write, and you would use these words to speak to us tonight. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I thought there was someone behind me. Let me know if he tackles me. <clears throat> I guess I'll be the first to know. Okay, there's more to this life. Why? Because God wants you. From that point forward, that realization forward, your life is suddenly changed. It's about more than just you, and it's about more than just now. So we're considering the amazing fact of those three words where God says, I want you. First of all, he wants us to be reconciled with him, and then he invites us to be a part of his great search and rescue mission to rescue many other people who need to hear those words and need to experience that relationship with him. Our guide has been the book of 2 Corinthians. Again, I wish I had time to go through every chapter. We're just going to have time to go through four of them. But chapter 1, we looked at the three reasons why we're perfectly suited for this, because of our pain. What's the second one? Pressure. The third one? Plans. Then this morning we considered how, how it is that God uses us to change the hearts of other people. He uses our words, but in the context of our relationships with other people. Now, tonight I want to consider, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians... The one thing that tends to sideline us and this partnership and keeps us from doing our part. And that one thing is we lose heart, or in short, we quit. The God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, says he wants us. And then at some point before we die, we decide we don't want him. How could that possibly happen? Well, in chapter 4, we're going to look at how that is. So in this chapter, God says, I want you to endure. I don't want you just to start. I don't want you just to have a few good years. I, I want you to see it to the finish line. I want you to make it all the way to the end. And I think this is so important for you, especially your age, to, to understand what it is that tends to derail people and keep them from getting to the finish line. 2 Corinthians 4.1 says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Why would it say that? because we tend to lose heart. Statistically, within 10 years, the majority of this room will no longer be following Christ. Now, I believe that this is an exceptional bunch, so I choose to believe that the statistics will not be true of this room. But simply because you have made a decision to follow Christ and simply because you feel deeply about that now does not mean that you can now coast to the finish line. As Paul said, you have to strain forward. Why do we lose heart? Why, why do we get discouraged? 
Well, just think of the last time that you lost heart and got discouraged about something and felt like giving up. Most likely it was because your efforts had resulted in failure rather than success. No one is tempted to give up when everything is successful. We're tempted to give up when things don't work out according to plan, when failure strikes. Success motivates us, failure discourages us. So how we define success and failure is one of the critical elements that will determine whether or not we endure till we die or whether we quit. Let me ask you this. You, know, you don't need to call out the answer, but just think about this. When, when is a person successful, let's say, in their career? What would be the indicators of that? Well, usually you've accomplished something, you have a good job, you've been promoted over time, and you know, you're successful in your career. How about if you get married? How would you know if your marriage is successful? Well, there's lots of indicators. Um, if your spouse likes you, that's a good indicator. <laughs> if your spouse can't stand you, that's, that doesn't feel like success. How about if you're a successful parent? What would that look like if you're a successful parent? Well, if your kids turn out well, right? What would financial success look like? Well, you'd be able to pay your own way and... You know, according to what most people think, you'd be able to buy bigger houses and maybe nicer cars and better stuff and go on neater vacations. And, of course, in our country, the biggest indicator of financial success is you, you, you save massively for retirement so you can have this killer retirement. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's not enough for us to declare ourselves successful or try to ramp up feelings of success for success to be real, it has to be measured by some objective standard. There has to be something we can point to and say, yes, it's working. I, I, I am successful. And in the area of the objective standards, we have two options. One is what success looks like in the eyes of others. Option two is what success looks like in the eyes of God. The main reason people do not endure is because they choose to measure the success of their life based on what others think success is rather than what God says success is. Our default setting, of course, is to measure the success of our lives by what is successful in the eyes of others, because we can see that. We can't see God smiling and thumbs up and nodding and approving. We can't see that. But we can see other people, and so we, we line up our lives at different points and we measure it by what other people say is successful. Well, let's say that you arrive at success according to what other people say is successful. What happens then? I mean, just think of successful people in the standards of this world. The moment they reach success, they arrive at the pinnacle of their career, what happens at that point? Do they just suddenly live in contentment the rest of their life? No. Without exception, they keep trying to add to their success. They've already earned success, but they... It's never enough. Why? Because we were made to partner with God, which means only what he defines as successful will, will scratch our success itch. And we can never get enough of what people say is successful for us to feel successful. That's why successful people keep trying to add to it, keep trying to pile it on. I think this is evidence that Whenever we use the standards of other people to measure success, it's clearly the wrong standard because it's never enough, no matter how much you get. And God has a very different way of measuring success. Now, the good news is that what he says is successful is doable for everybody. What people say is successful, well, some get there and some don't. But when God says, here are the standards, here's the measuring device, it's possible for everybody. It's not easy, but it's doable. So what are God's standards of success? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this chapter is about God contrasting our view of success with his views of success. Because how we define success, how we measure success, will determine whether or not we can endure and make it to the end. The first contrast is this. It's about God's ways, not your results. We measure success based on results. God measures success on whether or not we are living our life his way. Well, God has a way of doing life. And as we line up our life and, 
and continue to move in that direction, God says that's successful. No matter what else happens around you, I define success that way. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for success simply means to make progress in the right destination. You know, it's a, it's a movement. For us, success is something you arrive at. It's a destination. For God, it's, it's a direction of life. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 describes it this way. He says, therefore, we already read verse 1, but let me read again. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So let's think our way through this. Through God's mercy, we have this ministry. Why, why are we partnering with God in this great search and rescue mission? Not because of anything special about us. It's just simply God showed us his mercy. We've been forgiven. And therefore, we are perfectly qualified to help bring that message to other people. We got this job not because we are the moral elite, but because of God's mercy in Christ that's changing us. And now we know firsthand what this means and how desperately other people need this. And we long to see the same kind of change for other people. So, Paul goes on to say, so don't lose heart in this. Why would he say that? Again, because we do. The reason is this job is full of failure. Those that you are praying for who are far from God, those that you're trying to reach out to, those that you're trying to share the gospel with, those that you're wanting to see them reconciled in Christ, it's, a, it's, it's full of failure. They often show very little evidence of change. And even those who have decided to follow Christ and you start investing in, they don't always grow, grow and move forward. Harold Bullock, a good friend of mine, many of you know Harold. He's been a mentor to me for most of my life. I remember years ago, Harold told me that at one point, he made a list of everyone that he had invested in as a Christ follower. He'd disciple and he'd help. And he tallied up the list and he discovered that only a third of those he had invested in at that point were still walking with Christ. Two-thirds had, had quit. So if you, if you base it on the results, if you base it on you know, investment and return, you're going to give up. Because, well, the hearts of people are fairly fickle. And that's a, the results are, are going to be really tough to measure success by. So what Paul says here is that rather than that, rather than focusing on the results, rather than that, here's what we focus on. Not on how people are changing. We focus on doing life God's way. Well, how do we do that? First, we renounce secret and shameful ways. You see, if we're partnering with God, we know that what we do in private affects the partnership as much as what we do in public. Because God sees everything. Not, nothing's hidden from Him. And God's not going to be delighted and, and work with someone that's doing something that's just causing Him to gag. You know, we might be able to ex escape the consequences of others knowing our secret, but not God. So we work diligently at, at renouncing, at setting aside things that we wouldn't want other people to know. Shameful things, secret things, things that we're hoping nobody catches and nobody ever finds out. We don't have two separate lives. A life that we're trying to keep hidden and a life that, you know, we're portraying for everyone else. Nothing's hidden from God's view. Because we know that God will not partner with those who are committed to shameful ways. So, so we work hard at keeping our private life in line with the ways of God. We, we renounce secret and shameful ways. This is, I think, the top reason why people don't endure. They start developing a little secret something off to the side that's out of God's ways. And it begins as you know, something small, but they keep it a secret. They're a little ashamed of it. They don't, if you were in the hard attitude session, they don't live an honest and open life. They don't tell anyone else about this. And then that little secret begins to grow, and it begins to grow, and it begins to grow. As I said this afternoon, sin is a nocturnal creature. It grows in the dark. It grows in secret. 
So it begins to grow and grow and grow. And before long, it begins to take over a life. In my observation, this is the number one reason why people check out. They, they don't continually renounce secret and shameful ways. Pretty soon they're, you know, they'll find another reason. People find their reasons that are different than the other reasons. You know, they'll be mad at somebody or they'll be disappointed at something. But the real reason is they've got this secret sin and they can't keep this thing going for much longer. And so they just check out. They quit. So we first, we renounce secret and shameful ways. Secondly, we don't use deception. Why, why do people lie? Usually it's to get what they want. You know, you want something, and if you're going to tell the truth, then it's going to put in jeopardy the thing you want. You, you, you want this result, and so, but if I tell the truth, I'm not going to get the result I want. So I'm either not going to tell the truth, which is a form of lying by omission, or I'm, I'm going to shade it, and I'm going to, you know, mislead people so I can get what I want. When I was in the advertising business, which was the area I was in before I moved into ministry, professional ministry, uh, the common practice in our industry was to... Um, to underbid a proposal. Because in the advertising business, you know, you're dealing with the creative product. And so you really don't know exactly what the final product looks like. You're not buying 30 widgets off the shelf. You're buying an ad campaign. And so it's a, it's a kind of a process. You bill by the hour. But in order to submit a bid, you, you have to estimate, based on the scope of work, how much you think this will cost. Well, the common practice is people would go in and they'd lowball their bids, knowing full well it was going to cost a whole lot more than that to do the scope of work. But their plan was, is let's get the bid. Let's, let's be deceptive about our bid here. We know it's going to cost more. We don't want to tell them that, but we want to get the bid. We begin the relationship. We get them down the road in this relationship, and then we start hitting them with change orders. And that was just, that's the way it was done. I had one gentleman tell me, that's just an industry standard. And what I've learned over time is most industries have standards that are deceptive. You know, they kind of work amongst themselves so that they together can be somewhat deceptive. Well, I was trying to sell a creative product in an environment in which this deception was going on. And if I didn't play along, it was going to cost me. So I had a decision to make. Am I going to use deception as a as a way of feeding my family, or am I not? I knew it was going to cost me results. I chose not to be deceptive. Now, I wish I could tell you that because of that, God just blessed me and made me the top salesperson. No, I was at a disadvantage. I mean, there were some good results over time, but for the longest time, it was, I was at a huge disadvantage. The choice, though, is... And you'll face this choice again and again and again through life. Am I going to do this God's way or am I going to get the result? I mean, you'll look right at that choice and say, but if I do it God's way, I'm going to not get what I want. I'm going to lose this. This is no way this is going to work out. And you have to make a choice. If you're going to endure, you have to choose to do life God's way. A few years ago in our church, we... Um, we, we bought, I think I mentioned we bought property and we moved on and we constructed some buildings. And the way the timing of the thing worked is we moved in almost exactly when the economy began to tank. So we were like this, you know, young married couple that had bought their first house and stretched to reach the mortgage. And then, you know, the income went down. And so we were struggling and struggling financially just to pay the mortgage on this thing. And finally, after about a year and a half of doing that, we got to a point where a part of our debt was due, about $200,000. It was due. We owed it, and we, didn't, we couldn't pay it. And the entity that we owed this money to filed a lawsuit against us and pushed for us to have to file for bankruptcy as a church. I mean, it, it was a disaster. And I have to tell you that the last thing I wanted to do is to go before the entire church and say, Here's what's going on. I have led us to this point. And if we don't get $200,000 in the next 10 days, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to leave this property. And I remember wrestling with this. I, I didn't want them to know the truth. I mean, I really, it was hard, I, you know, I just didn't want them to know the truth because it, it made me look terrible. And I knew, I knew what people were going to do. 
People were going to say, well, Bevan, you knucklehead. What were you thinking? Why did you lead us to do this? You should have known better. And so on that particular Sunday, I stood up in front of the group and I said, here's the situation that we're facing. Here's why it happened. And I have to take full responsibility for this. I led us to do this. I led us to take this risk. And we are now up against the wall. And I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I had to decide. I'm, I'm, I just have to be honest. I have to do it God's way. And I was, I mean, I, you know, for me personally, I thought, well, I'm just going to have to find another job. I'm going to have to, you know, there, there was a group of people that came up to me before all this and knew about this. And they said, you know what, if we lose the property, we'll, we'll join you in Central Park. And so we called them the under the tree gang because we'd kind of, you know, we'll just meet under the tree. You know, we'll, we'll just start all over again. But I stood before the group and I told them that. And I said, we, we need $200,000. I know none of, I mean, I can't write that check. I don't think any of you can. So just whatever God, you know, in 10 days leads you to do. So in 10 days, they gave $330,000. And I've seen this again and again and again. When, you, when you're just honest, when you tell the truth, even, even though it makes you look horrible, it allows God to do the unusual. Now, he may or he may not. But if you decide to control it, if you decide to manage it, if you decide to shave it and be dishonest about it, then it's all up to you. God steps back and says, all right, I guess you got this. I'm out. I only deal with people who do things my way. So we don't use deception. We renounce secret and shameful ways. And then the other thing we do, the third thing, is we don't distort the word of God. Now, why would anyone twist what God has clearly said? It's because they want something that God has clearly said no to. <laughs> That's why you twist it. I mean, this was the first temptation in the Garden of Eden. I mean, all of these trees, God designates one tree and says, of this one tree, you are not to eat the fruit. Now, let me ask you, is that confusing? It's pretty obvious, right? You got, a, you got an orchard. And God identifies one tree and says, this is the only one you can't eat the fruit of. Well, what was the first temptation in the Garden of Eden? What did the serpent, Satan, taking in the form of a serpent, what did he say to Eve? Did God really say the same temptation now? You know, it's really clear. God says this. These are his standards. This is the way. But then there's this person or there's this thing or there's that we want and... And there it is again. Are you, did you read the Bible right? Are you sure it really said that? Because there's a lot of people who don't think the Bible says that. So you get out your scripture, scripture twister, a friend of mine calls it. You know, it's just like a wrench. You grab a verse in the Bible and you, you kind of lean on it and you kind of twist it. You know, get eight different translations until you can compile them together to say something it doesn't say. <laughs> then you go on and say, well... Yeah, I, I, you know, I can, I can do what I want to do. You distort the word of God. And again, at that point, God says, okay, you're on your own now. I, I, I don't partner with people who distort my word. I don't partner with people who, whose lives are shameful and secret. I don't partner with people who lie. God partners with those committed to live life his way. A few months ago, um, I saw a guy show up at our church that I hadn't seen in 10 years. He'd been around for about maybe a year and a half, became a Christ follower, began to grow, and then just disappeared. I, I, we never could track him down, didn't know what happened to him. So he came back, and at the end of the service, I saw him, and I walked up to him and said, man, how have you been? Where have you been? And he told me, you know, kind of what's happened, and he never really continued following Christ at that point, and... And now he's gone through it, just an awful divorce. And he looked at me and he said this, and he, he started tearing up. He said, you know, I, I decided today that I, I need to come back to church. I need to get back connected here. And he said, um, I was driving to Seabreeze, and he said, I'm, I'm sure that Bevan's not still there. I mean, it's been, it's been 10 years. 
I'm sure he's not still there. He said, but then I walked in, and there you were, standing up there, and I listened to you, and you're, you're saying the exact same things you've always said. I thought, really? I haven't been added any creativity to it at all? Or, you know, I said, saying the exact same things you always said. But he was tearing up, and he said, you have no idea what that means to me. He said, this is what he said. He said, it makes me think that this stuff must really be true. What he was saying is, you've, clearly you've built your life on it. And you're, you're not distorting God's word. As people get a chance to see you consistently follow God, you, you have no idea what that says to them. What it communicates. It's, it basically said, and this is what he said to me, it makes me think this is real. Well, yes, in fact, it is. But see, if it's just an opinion, if it's just something that we hold on to until we really want something over here, well, then we'll distort it. We'll use deception. We'll develop secret and shameful ways. What God wants from us is, is the willingness to trust him enough to do what he says, no matter what the consequences will be. Because God doesn't need us to produce results. You know, he's, he's not fretting and worrying because he needs us to make some money for him. He doesn't need us to get people to follow Christ. He's perfectly capable of getting the results that he wants. What he wants is for us to trust him. Do life his way. And then allow that life to make the impact that he wants it to make on many people. When we do this, this verse says, what, what ends up happening is we end up commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Every person that we come in contact with, that we have a relationship with, if we live our lives in, in this manner, we are commending ourselves to their conscience. What does that mean? Well, the word commend means to verify as good. You know, if you receive a commendation, it means that you, you're recognized for doing something good. It's that root word, commend. If you give a recommendation for somebody, what you're doing is you are verifying that someone is good. That's the R-E part, the prefix, which means to go back. You're, you're giving evidence, yes, for the past five years I've worked with this person. I'll give them my recommendation. You are commending them. You're saying that this is good. So why then would a conscience need any verification before it's convinced that something is good. Someone needs to be convinced that God's word is good and right and that God is good and right. And that happens on a conscience level. As we are talking about this morning, that's, that's where faith decisions are made, in our conscience. And we tend to think that our conscience is just this kind of independent, internal, moral scale that we weigh things on. But a conscience isn't just independent. The word conscience has two pieces to it. The C-O-N part is the prefix that means together. C-O or C-O-N is a prefix that means together. Science, we all know what that means, what? It means to know. So a conscience is not just knowing. It's not just independently sciencing something, knowing something. It's a co-science. It needs other people. It needs to ping off other people to be convinced of something. We come to make our decisions not independently in the woods somewhere. We make our conscience decisions as we get a chance to see some things in the lives of other people. So what this means is that whenever we live this way, we are the recommendation of Christ to other people, to their conscience. You can't just fill out a, a reference about Jesus listing, listing his accomplishments and tell people, check this out. People need to see the impact of his life in your life. And when they see that, again, that doesn't mean they're automatically going to make the decision, but it's, it's a co-science. It's a reference point now of knowing, and they have a chance now to have their conscience shift from dependence on themselves to dependence on Christ, because you're doing it, and your life has something about it that they want. Back in 2005, my wife and I spent a week and a half, maybe it was almost two weeks in um, northern Ghana at a conference. I was asked to do some teaching there. And we met this couple. I want to show you this couple. 
Um, because they're African, it's really hard to see them, but their name is Simon and Ruth. And um, we sat down to dinner with them one night, and this, this was our favorite couple the whole trip. They're from Nigeria. We were in northern Ghana. They're from Nigeria. And they, we began to ask their story, and they told us that uh, they had decided to be missionaries to Togo, which um, there's Nigeria, and then Togo is a little slice, and then Ghana is next to it. So Togo is in between Nigeria and Ghana. They decided that God wanted them to move into some of the northern areas of Togo, very poor areas, um, and just move into a village um, completely full of people who knew nothing of Christ. So they moved into this village, and there's story after story about how hard that was and the price they paid to do it. And they said they lived there for two years. And they worked with them. They helped them farm. They tried to teach them about the Bible, and they had no interest in it at all. And kind of after two years, their sense was that God was moving them to a, another place, uh, I think back in Nigeria. And as they were leaving, after two years, they said, we just, we just didn't understand why God had brought us to that village. Because not a single person showed any interest in the gospel at all. So he said, honestly, we left after two years and we, we were kind of discouraged and thought maybe we just misheard God on his assignment. And we didn't really understand what that was about. He said, about a year and a half later, we decided to go back and visit this village. And we began to talk to people, and it didn't take very long for us to discover that 60% of the village had become Christians. And we thought, surely some higher skilled missionaries must have come through <laughs> to do something that we didn't, couldn't figure out. And they said, no, no one else had come through. So we asked them, what happened? And they said, you know what? As long as you were here, we didn't feel the freedom to really talk about you. But when you left, as we would sit around our fires at night, we began to talk about the two of you. And we began to discuss our observations, and we began to get more and more curious about you. We noticed how you, Simon, treated Ruth differently than any husband we've ever seen treat a wife. We noticed how you handled sickness and how you handled difficulty. We saw how you would come to our farms when we needed help and you would help us and no one ever does that. And so basically conversation after conversation would happen around these fires where it was basically boiled down to who were those people? We've never seen anything like it. Then they said, and so then one of us remembered that you kept talking about this book, this Bible that was the basis on which you lived your life. And so one of us traveled to another village where we knew there was a Bible, and we got a copy of the Bible, and they brought it back, and we started reading it. We found out about Christ, and we became convinced, and so 60% of us now are followers of Christ. <laughs> what Simon and Ruth had done is they had commended themselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God in that village. Before that point, they all had consciences in that African village in Togo. But they didn't have a Christian reference to ping that conscience off. When they saw something different, over time, God used that to bear fruit. You see, it's not about results. It's about doing life God's way. If, if you don't get that lined up correctly, you will not endure because the results are hit and miss. Secondly, it's not about their progress. I'm sorry, it is about their progress, not your circumstance. One of the mistakes we tend to think is that if, you know, God wants us, he wants to reconcile with us, we become followers of Christ. And what that does is that kind of moves us into a special category where God now is going to take care of us and make our life better than everyone else's. That is not anywhere in the Bible. But that's what people think. I mean, we've now accepted Christ. He's now our Savior. So that should come with some obligation to kind of make our life better then now, right? And, and when we have that expectation, well, because that's not true and God doesn't fulfill that expectation, then people eventually say, eventually, you know, this is, this is not what I signed up for. This is not the deal I made into which God says, it was never a deal in the first place. But we get this wrong. 
we have to understand that, that our life circumstances and how good they are is not God's focus. God's focus, I mean, we'll have heaven to have incredible circumstances. Right now, the critical thing is that people make progress towards faith in Christ. So that's the focus, not your circumstance. Verses 3 through 6, I'm going to read verses 7 through 10, but let me set it up a little bit. Verses 3 through 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 talks, talks about how the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they just can't see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ. They can't see. They're blinded. So how will they see then? Well, God has to open their eyes, but we have a role in that. And here's our role, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Okay, let's think through this one now. Wouldn't it be great if you could just follow the ways of Christ and people close to you would see Christ in you and be changed? Well, that'd be great. The problem is we look like an ordinary jar of clay to people. We just look like ordinary people. I mean, all of you look ordinary. None of you are glowing. No one's levitating. I mean, we just, you, you can't see Christ in you. You know, some of you smile better than others, but I mean, we're all, we're all normal. We're just normal people. So a jar of clay in this culture was just the most common household, you know, piece of pottery. You don't walk in to someone's house and go, where did you get that jar of clay? You know, it's, it wasn't a piece that anyone would notice. And that's the way we are. You know, people interact with us. You run across people on the campus and no one says, oh, what is going on with you? No, we're just jars of clay. But inside these ordinary, common bodies is a treasure. And that treasure is Christ, if you've decided to follow him. So the challenge is this. How will people ever see the treasure when all we, our eyes can see is the clay? Well, the answer is the clay exterior has to be broken. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Well, it's not. So God brings four kinds of circumstances that are beyond us, that break us, so that people can see the treasure behind the clay. Without these, all people will ever see is the clay. These four things happen. These next four things happen so that people can see the treasure behind the clay. Four kinds of circumstances. Here's the first one. Hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. This idea here means basically kind of bad circumstances come at you from all angles. I mean, you've probably had this experience to some extent. As you go on through life, you'll have several of these. You know, it's one thing when, when you get a piece of bad news, a bad circumstance comes at you. But if at the same time, then something comes from over here, then something comes from over here, then something comes from behind here, and it's just like you're hard-pressed on every side. You know, you get a financial problem, and then there's a health problem. You know, and then, then all of a sudden there's a, a, um, a work problem. Then there's a relationship problem. And it just feels like life is falling apart. What you're experiencing is what, what God said you would experience right here. You're hard-pressed on every side. You know, the image I have of this, and I may be dating myself here. I don't know how many of you still have watched the original Star Trek movie. But with uh, Luke and Leia on the Death Star, you remember they, they go in the chute and they get in the garbage. You know, what did I say? Sorry. Star Wars. Star Wars. Luke and Leia. The Death Star. You get in this garbage kind of container area, and the walls begin to contract. And there's all this garbage in there, and the walls are beginning to crush them. This is the image of this verse. It's like the circumstances of life are just like moving in and getting ready to crush you. And what you're doing is like, Luke, you're, you're on your little communicator talking to the C-3PO, trying to get him to shut the thing down. You know, it's as close as Star Wars got to prayer. Help, help. But see, this is what happens with our life sometimes. You know, we can face one pressure, but two, three, all sides? Well, God is in this. Because when life is closing in on you from every side, what direction is left? Up. 
God will bring you to the, to the edge, but not crush you. His goal isn't to crush you. His goal is to reveal the treasure behind the clay. That's why, as you walk with God, what you discover over and again is he, he seems to enjoy showing up at just the last minute. Actually, way past what we thought was the last minute, but turns out to be the last minute. And I often wondered, why, why does he do that? Well, because without that, people wouldn't see any more than the clay. But when circumstances overwhelm you and you handle it with faith and trust and you move forward, people, again, we've talked about this already, people have a sense, because there's something more there. That's not normal. They're seeing the treasure. The next circumstance, perplexed but not in despair. This Greek word for perplexed is very interesting. It's two, it's a compound word. The first part of the word means no way, like there's no possibility. The second part of the word means to ford across, which the idea is of a, of a river. So the image of this word is you're on the edge of, of a river that's 300 yards wide. It's deep. It's moving fast. There's no bridge on either side. There's no boat. And you need to get to the other side. But there's no way for you to do it. This is one of the circumstances we experience in life. You face an obstacle, face a challenge, you know, I, I need to get this done. I need to handle this. I need to be over here. But I don't know how to get from here to there. I mean, I, I'm, honestly, I'm facing this right now with the staff situation. You know, we, we have a staffing challenge. I know what we need to hire, but I don't know of anyone. So I'm sitting here on this, this bank, this side of the river, saying, we got to get over there by the end of the summer. And I'm like, I don't see a boat. I don't see a bridge. I don't see a rope. I don't see anything. And God will bring us to this point in, in life where we just don't know what to do. We don't know what to, how to handle this. It says perplexed, but not in despair. This is that word perplexed with another word added to it, which means beyond. We've moved from perplexity to hope. We don't know what to do next. But we're convinced this condition is temporary. Why? Because God is the one who always makes a way. God is the one who figures out how to get th across things. So God will put you in situations that are, you don't know what to do. Don't give in to despair. If you give in to despair, all people will see is that, well, that plain old clay. If you express hope, God will see, the people will see the treasure. The next one, persecuted but not abandoned. Persecuted means to make run. You're chased, you're harassed by someone or something. This basically is a circumstance that kind of scares you and gets you panicked in running. But you know, if you're going to display Christ, you respond with realizing that he hasn't left. God's with me. I'm not abandoned. It's on the edge of this fear that faith has a real chance to grow. And then the last one, struck down but not destroyed. This word literally means to get knocked off your feet. Hopefully this won't happen to you too often, but probably some. Where a circumstance will happen that will literally throw you up in the air and land you right on your back. It'll blindside you. But in that process, God is not out to destroy you. He's out to reveal the treasure in you. Now what we tend to do in life is we tend to try to establish cushions. We try to create margins between us and these edges because we don't like to be perplexed. We don't like to be chased. We don't like to be struck down. But God keeps moving us from these edges towards faith. Now, I said a couple talks ago, my observation is that God seems to be much less interested in my comfort than I am. And the reason is because he wants people to see the treasure. And if I'm comfortable, no way will anyone ever see the treasure. So this is why when life gets uncomfortable, don't quit. God isn't abandoning you. He's using you to show people the treasure. And that's more important than your comfort, than the condition of your clay. It's clay. It's temporary. One another way of saying this is if you want to lead, lead people to the edge of faith, you need to go there yourself. Because it's on the edges of faith that God becomes visible. The, the people see a power involved in the middle of these trials. They see that this is not from us. That's what this verse says. It's not from us, from God. 
You see, in, in God's mind, it's far more important that people discover the hidden treasure of Christ before they die than that you and I polish the clay. That's just not God's priority. So don't lose heart. It, it's for their benefit, even though it hurts you. And the last key, if you're going to endure, is this. Realize it's not about, or it, it's about now. We got it wrong now. It's about then, not now. It's about the future, not now. See, we tend to evaluate the present, and we draw a bottom line on the present. And God says, hey, it's only the beginning of the third quarter. The game is far from over. So if you're going to endure, you have to develop a perspective that's beyond your circumstance. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. That's a very discouraging phrase. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet, and here's the encouragement, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, these are the things that Paul has just explained, which don't sound light or momentary, but that's the way he describes it, compared to these others, they really are. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's why they're light and momentary compared to what we get. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. I would encourage you guys to memorize these verses if you haven't. These are life. This is, this is a lifeline in the swirl of difficulty. What it's saying is, starts out, don't lose heart over the fact that your body is wasting away. Let me show you a graph of your body over time. Okay? Here it is. <laughs> On the bottom axis is time. The vertical axis is appeal. Okay? Now, yeah, babies are cute, but basically in terms of your appearance, your strength, you, you, you peak and then you head down. Okay? Most of, most of you in this room, you are as handsome or as beautiful as you will ever be. You are as strong and vibrant as you will ever be. Now, you may be able to hang, you may be able to draw this plateau out for a while, but eventually, you're in decline. And then there's people like myself that are on the back side of this curve, okay? I mean, this, this last year alone, I had two surgeries. It's ridiculous. <laughs> People my age now get together and we talk about our medical procedures. I mean, I'd, I'd heard about that. I'm, I'm just embarrassed that I'm now in that group. I mean, I'm, I'm in rapid decline, apparently. I mean, I had you know, a melanoma spot on my back that they took like a divot out of to get rid of. And then I had eye surgery. I mean, I used to go years without seeing a doctor. But I peaked <laughs> a couple of decades ago. And listen to this, you will too, okay? You will too. But be encouraged, okay? Don't lose heart. Why? You get the chance to exchange this graph for this one. Okay, you exchange that graph for this one. Inwardly, see, outwardly, that's what it looks, that's what it looks like. You can't, I mean, I don't, Plastic surgery just makes people look weird, okay? <laughs> it doesn't help. Just makes them look plasticky, okay? But you have the chance to exchange that outward graph for this one. Over time, the appeal on the inside goes up until you die. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't lose heart. You get the chance to exchange that outward graph for an inward one, an eternal one. So you have two options to do this. You can, you can spend your life appealing to what the eyes of people want to see and appeals to the eyes of people or what appeals to the eyes of God. You can decide to live for graph one and just stretch it out as long as you can. Or you can go for graph two. If we choose to exchange our lives for what we can see, you know, it's, it's just graph one. It goes up for a while, and then by the time we die, it's not worth much. The other option is exchange your life for what God values. Now, you can't do that in one transaction. You don't just say, yes, on graph two. I'll, I'll do that one. No, 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 no. What he says, 
How do you do this? Daily. Okay, it's renewed what? Day by day. So each day you have a chance to be changed by God on the inside. Each trouble you face is an opportunity to grow and build a life that will have eternal value. It fars out, far outweighs anything else. So let me summarize now. Here's the key to the encouragement in this life. Here's the key to enduring. You fix your eyes on what is unseen and you pay the visible life for the invisible inward stuff. And you do that by these three things. You da daily you decide that this life is more about doing things God's way than coming up with results. You will have that opportunity on mo in most days. Am I going to do things God's way? I'm going to come up with results. Daily you decide to live more for the advancement of Christ in this world than for your own comfort. Daily you decide to measure your investments not by what's visible or temporary, but by what's invisible and eternal. And let me tell you, Everything in the culture will scream for you to live for graph one. But it's a lie. Graph two is the only way that's worth living. But if you decide to live for graph one, you probably won't make it. You, you know, because everything you're living for is, it's, it's a losing proposition. So God says, I want you, I want you to endure. I want you to be part of what I'm doing, but you have to understand the way I operate. You have to understand the basis of this partnership. You're not the managing partner in this I am. And I'm asking you to exchange your temporary life for an eternal one. And to do that day after day after day. So let me close this in prayer. And I think we got some more worship after that. Father, it, it's incredibly helpful for us to see life from your perspective. To see that our light and momentary troubles can achieve for us an eternal glory that far outweighs even the worst day. So we want to endure. We want to do life your way. No matter what the consequences are, no matter what we have to pay in terms of results. We want to be jars of clay in which the treasure of Christ inside of us is made visible. And we know that that's going to require that the jar breaks sometimes. And we are willing to have our own lives broken so that people might see you, Jesus, and spend eternity with you. And in a culture that, that just bombards us and demands and calls for us to give our life for the things that are visible, we choose to, to deny that. We choose to give our lives for the things that are invisible and that will last forever. I pray that in this room that the statistics would not bear true. I pray that in this room every single person would make it to the end, would endure, and would be so grateful in your presence that they didn't punt. Help us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.